welcome to the gray area where I give interviews with developers, talk about gaming news and reviews, and focus on the interrelationships between gamers. My name is Genesee Gray, and this is the 96th episode in a weekly series called Spooky Squid of Death. <laughs> Here with me is pixel artist, game designer, Miguel Sternberg from Spooky Squid for They Bleed Pixels. So welcome to the show. Uh, thanks. Is is that the normal name, or do you change it for every developer? I change it for every single okay, one. Okay, I figured. <laughs> Although that would be, so well. <laughs> be interesting if they were all spooky squid of death. I would just have people on that have done games involving squids. That'd actually be a fair number, I think. <laughs> really? I guess yeah. Cthulhu kind of makes that a little more likely. Hmm. It's a genre. It is, it is. Last episode was an interview with Scott Chatton, gameplay producer and designer for Trendy Entertainment for Dungeon Defenders 2. Please visit Genesee.com to add to the forum discussion on that topic or to see my posts regarding it and to tell me your story. Today is Monday, May 15th, and we are going to talk about Miguel, his art and games, and the indie company scene. Okay, so let's begin with your news of the week. What have you been up to? I know you've been traveling and busy man. Um, well, I just finished up um, a project called Comics vs. Games, which is something I co-organized with some other people for the Toronto Comic Arts Festival. Mm -hmm. I'm up in Toronto, Canada. Um, and that was an art show, a sort of zine fair, and um, a bunch of games that were curated that all sort of have um, comic book-like um, elements to their game design. So that just happened last weekend and I'm still sort of recovering from it. Uh, I was reading about that. It kind of struck me similar to like the Molly Dew Festival, except for obviously less Peter Molyneux. Um, yeah. But the, is this game, five game devs and five comic artists kind of like come together yeah. to make this? That was last year we sort of did one that was about sort of mixing the creators together. So okay. we got, like you said, five game devs, five comic artists and had them make jam games. And then this year, for sort of the replacement for that part, was um, more concentrating on the games themselves, um, mixing comics and games. So they were mm -hmm. all um, games that, that, uh, that then when you got to the sort of design level, had some aspect of comics. So there's a lot of sort of things where you're moving panels around or placing things inside panels. Um, so they sort of, at their core, had an element of comics in them. Uh -huh. Do you have three days to create this game, or is it just a one-day? Uh... These were actually existing games, so I sort of found enough games that had that um, already in their um, design and just sort of wanted to showcase them and show this is some stuff that's happening. I see. Um, that people might not be aware of. Is there often an overlap you find between gamers and people that enjoy, like, manga and comics? Um... There is, in terms of creators, is not as much as I would expect. I'm someone who's always sort of been involved in a little bit in both worlds, which is why I ended up um, organizing this in the first place and co-organizing it now. Um, but I find there's a lot of um, game creators who don't read much comics or aren't really sort of aware that while there's like an indie scene in games that's fairly recent, there's actually a, a long-running, like multiple decades old indie scene in comics that mm. shares a lot of the same sort of sensibility. Um, so I, I kind of like trying to do things that introduce the two um, crowds to each other. I could see that. How did the one last year go when you have, uh, you know, game devs and comic artists kind of making making a product together with such diverse fields? How did uh, people work that out? Just kind of the look of the game became the comic artist's business and then the actual functionality, the game devs, or how did they work together? 
It was different with each team. So like in some cases, they'd go with an idea that the, the game designer had. In other cases, it was an idea that the comic artist came up with. They definitely each had their domain that they had more control over, but a lot of them were like very, very collaborative. Mm. What's the average length of a game created in that kind of event? They're all pretty short, and that's partially by design and partially by necessities. So they're all around like roughly five minutes. Um, some were a little bit longer, some were a little bit shorter. They all, like, we knew that we were going to be showing them in a gallery setting. So mm-hmm. I had sort of told them that, you know, you want it to be fairly short. You want it to be something that people can, you know, sit down and immediately start playing. And because it's going to be at an event, if it's multiplayer, that's always great. So we ended up every single one of those ones was multiplayer. So I think while it was five games, I think we could support something like 16 players, okay. something like that total. Hmm. That's a challenge. <laughs> it would be. Okay. Uh, let's start a little bit with your younger years and uh, childhood. I've heard that Super Nintendo has influenced your art, but did you play these games as a child as well? Well, actually, I grew up with um, uh, the Master System and um, all of my sort of like touchstone games are not the Nintendo ones. Uh, IBM XT, like early, early first generation IBMs. So uh, I played a lot of like text adventures and okay, you know, King's Quest stuff like that. Yes, and, uh, King's games. Um, so uh, Alex Kidd, uh, Wonder Boy, that sort of thing. Okay, yeah, Black Cauldron and uh, King's Quest, definitely a series I loved as a child too. Yeah, I, I definitely like. I feel like they have not aged well when I go back to them. <laughs> This is a great genre, but this is a terrible, terrible execution of it. Like, you can be forgiven when you start a new genre. I mm-hmm. think that's typical. Like, Zork is kind of one of the worst text adventures, and I think King's Quest is kind of one of the worst adventure games. But they started it, so... See, kind of- I never went back to Obsidian or Zork since then, so I, I haven't, like, ruined that for myself. But I, I guess maybe if you do go back, it's really not well done. <laughs> Well, they're really like random and kind of cruel to the player in both cases. Ah. Uh, like there's a lot of just random deaths. When you compare it to sort of like, I feel like LucasArts really figured out adventure games and like how to do them in a way that was not super frustrating. Um, what game do you think uh, would epitomize that for LucasArts? Um, I think definitely like the best constructed one is Day of the Tentacle. Ah. I feel like that's one of the best structured um, adventure games puzzle-wise um, I've ever played. Hmm, I haven't played that. I'll have to check it out. It's really like, it's super non-linear. Like you feel a lot of the time when you're playing it, like you're just goofing around. Like you're just like, oh, I'm going to like give the exploding cigarette to George Washington. And then, oh, he lost his teeth. I bet if I replace him with chattering teeth, that'll be funny. And then like later on, you suddenly realize you just solved like an important puzzle. Oh. Mainly like just sort of goofing around with the systems. So it kind of encourages you to be creative and silly? Yeah, like it, it, it covers a lot of the choices and a lot of the time, even if you don't know why you're doing a particular puzzle, it seems like a fun thing to do. Like there's a certain naturalness to it. And because it's nonlinear, you end up often messing around with something before you've really figured out um, why you should be. But in a way that, that works and doesn't feel broken. Hmm, Interesting. I've uh, heard you speak in other interviews about the concept of timeless games and kind of what constitutes them, but I was wondering, 
how you would define that because we are talking about games uh, that obviously don't age very well. And, and I had talked about, I guess last week I was talking about the Final Fantasy, early Final Fantasy series and how it's just painful to go back and play them. You know, what, yeah. what constitutes a timeless game and how would you create that like as a developer or something that's going to last and people aren't going to go back and say, oh, oh, that was the 80s? I think definitely like one thing is the art isn't as important as people think because like people are still constantly downloading, buying um, the original Mario Brothers or original mm-hmm. Super Mario Brothers. Like that's clearly a timeless game. It's come out on every single Nintendo system. People keep buying it. People keep on being introduced to it. And I think the reason isn't because of the looks. There's plenty of games from that time that look the same or look better. But um, the game design is really, really solid in that game. It, unlike a lot of early games, both on the computer and on the Nintendo and Master System, it isn't it isn't cruel about how it does stuff. Like you play Contra or anything like that, and it's full of cheap deaths. And by cheap deaths, <laughs> I don't mean hard deaths, because obviously, given the game I made, I, I don't have a problem with things being really, really hard. But things that are just like a surprise, like from what I've heard, the um, the second Mario game that came out in Japan, not the one that came out here, mm-hmm. wasn't designed by Miyamoto, and it still has all of the same elements as the first one, but is full of like cheap shots. So like places where you might try to make a jump that feels totally clear, but there's an invisible block that, um, like one of those invisible coin blocks that you'll hit, and it'll cause you to fall into the pit. And the only way you'd know that is by doing it and dying. Yes, I've watched that on YouTube and seen people just go mad, you know, yeah. having to play the same thing over and over and over and over and learn every area and remember it. And there's ways of doing, like, I don't think, there's never like a, you know, you can't break that rule ever, but like, it feels like the same sort of thing that I think is wrong with King's Quest over a LucasArts game is that the King's Quest games were full of like, just cheap deaths, like, oh, I'm going to try exploring this in this way. Oh, I died. Or I'm going to try doing this. Oh, I died. <laughs> um, with no warning other than, like, the foreknowledge. Even later King's Quests, I think it's four. The one, first one that had, like, sort of painted backdrops mm-hmm. has a desert where basically what you need to do is go into the desert, wander four screens, die, map out that you did that, yes. wander through four screens again in a slightly different order, die. And the only way you figure it out is by just pure trial and error. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's that sort of like backwards game design that I feel often makes something not timeless, like make some of the earlier games not timeless and other ones like Mario obviously are. Mm-hmm. Okay. How did you get the education and end up moving into the gaming industry? You, you have a diverse background of different things that you've been good at. Yeah, I... Uh, I, I definitely took a roundabout path. Um, I started taking cognitive science and artificial intelligence in university. And I did that for about two years and then um, dropped out and became a web developer for a few years. And then went back to school for 3D animation, completed that, and then went into the film industry and worked in film for a year doing visual effects with my intention always being to get into games. Hmm. So after that, um, there was sort of a dip in the film industry, partially due to the SARS virus breaking out um, in Toronto. Oh. There's like an in-joke about that in uh, the Scott Pilgrim film, if you look at his short in one scene. Everyone in the film industry in Toronto like recognizes that. (laughs) 
Because um, it really, like, a lot of people lost their jobs. Wow, how does that relate? Like, well, basically, nobody wanted to film here because they're worried about their getting like contagion. film crew and actors getting oh. SARS. So, and then it just like as soon as there's a dip, it takes a little while for stuff to recover. Mm-hmm. So yeah, um, had sort of a year when I was on EI and just doing mini comics with a friend of mine who also worked at the same studio. And he now is a professional comic artist. He does some stuff for Oni Press. And during that sort of the end tail bit of that, um, I started talking with people on a forum on the uh, the Toronto IGDA chapter. And that bunch of people, we started meeting at a bar, and that became Capybara Games, or mm. Cappy. So I was with Cappy sort of in the early, early days when uh, we were making like cell phone, pre-smartphone cell phone games, which are like pretty much the worst platform you could possibly <laughs> design games for. And eventually sort of moved on from that to, um, to being a freelance pixel artist and freelanced on all sorts of different projects. And then at one point sort of started to see the, the indie scene really start to coalesce and was like, I'd like to actually get into designing games. So took some sort of savings, went for a grant, had sort of a mix of things fall together, and uh, started Spooky Squid. Mm-hmm. The Capybara Games has done really well. I, they were just at PAX East this year, and I think I saw them set up. Do you still have any connections there, any sort of, uh, since you're a founding member? Nothing sort of legal, but like I see those guys all the time. Um, like the Toronto game community in general is really, really tight. There's uh-huh. um, a lot of stuff that we sort of do jointly. So like at... Bit Bizarre, which was part of the Comics versus Games thing last weekend, a whole bunch of local indies were there, including Cappy. They were just across um, the aisle from us. The founding of Spooky Squid. Now, uh, I think everyone can tell looking at your games that you have a love for cephalopodish things. Uh, I know you've been asked this question before, but why Spooky Squid? Like, Squid I can understand, Spooky I can understand. The combo, interesting. Basically, I knew I wanted to have Squid in the name because I knew I wanted to do a Squiddy sort of logo. And originally, actually, the the studio name I really wanted was um, Flock of Squid, um, which would have them sort of flying through a cloudy background. What Um, is a group of Squid called? Like a pod? What? I think it's a pod. I'd have to check. I know I looked this up at one point, Um, but I love the idea of a flock of Squid. but unfortunately, someone was sitting on that domain name. So I had sort of a whole bunch of other options that I'd look through. And um, Spooky Squid, it's fun to say, and um, no one was squatting on the domain name, so I could take it. <laughs> yes. There are just two members of Spooky Squid? Yep. It's myself and Andrew Pilkew, who does, um, excuse me, the bulk of the programming. Um, and, well, he does, like, on any of our big ones, he does all the programming. And then on some of the small ones, I also do programming. Um, and then I do the artwork and game design and um, level design and that sort of thing. How do you coordinate all the work? Do you get together in a physical location, or is it mostly electronic, like online? It's a mix. We live in the same neighborhood, so he'll oh, come nice. up with sort of a home, um, home office. 
uh, that we can both work at. So he'll come some days and we'll sort of go over stuff. And then often both of us work well alone. Um, me, especially from the, the years of freelance, I'm used to doing that. Mm-hmm. So we'll sort of meet when we need to go over stuff that we need to do in person, like um, fine tuning the physics of a, a character's movement, that type of thing, or figuring out um, how the uh, artwork needs to be prepared so that he can import it into the game. And then when it's just like, I've got a huge amount of pixels to draw, or he's got a bunch of like serious code to do, we'll work separately. What uh, engine do you design in? Um, for They Bleed Pixels, we used XNA, and I sort of like, if I were to do a post-mortem, I would count it as one of our biggest mistakes. Oh, uh, why? Um, it's um, not terribly efficient at doing what we want it to do, um, and it also kind of makes it difficult for us to port well and easily to Mac and Linux and other platforms. Um, okay. So it was sort of the wrong tool for the job. See? I have to ask this. It's completely random, but uh, IMDB ghosts with shit jobs. I just have to know what that's about. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Oh, I should just say with the engine thing, for all of our small games, we use Game Maker, which I can definitely recommend. It's like one of the most amazing tools for um, for prototyping and making games really quickly. Um, it jams and stuff like that. It's the game uh, game engine I wish I had access to when I was growing up. Huh. That's a good. I have a lot of people that are kind of up and coming designers that always want to know, you know, how to get started and what to use and things like that. So that's a good tip. Definitely. Yeah. No, I definitely I'd recommend that. And if they've never programmed before, there's a program called Scratch that MIT makes mm. that's for teaching little kids how to program. And it's a really good entry to start, like, spend a weekend with Scratch and then move on from that to Game Maker. Nice. Thank you. I will pass that on. Because that's, uh-huh. that's what people have sometimes where it seems that game design is very uh, delineated in the sense that you have people that program and you have people that do artwork and sometimes they don't cross. And then if you're, if you're an artwork person and you want to make a game, you're kind of stuck. Yeah, I feel like everyone like should loan a little bit of, of coding. I wish that that was part of just the regular curriculum because it's not like, yeah, hardcore, hardcore programming is really hard, but um, there's a large amount of programming that just falls into the fairly easy and really useful that mm-hmm. everyone could be doing if it was taught in school as just like the same way that they teach, you know, reading and math and such. Um, yeah. I have a big rant about that. Uh, no, feel free to rant. <laughs> um, you're asking about Ghost with Shit Jobs. Yes. So Ghost with Shit Jobs is a film um, by my friend Jim Monroe, who's another sort of big figure in the Toronto game scene. Um, he um, has made several sort of text adventures that have gotten um, awards or gotten notice. Um, I think the best one, best known one is probably Everybody Dies. <laughs> um, I'm sensing a theme. So he made also, he wrote, um, he was the writer on a um, indie game, what do you call it, IndieCade winner last year called Unmanned. It's a um, game about uh, drone warfare. So he does a lot of game stuff as well, but he um, has also done novels, he's done comics, and he's done two films, uh, Ghost of Shit Jobs being the second one. And it sort of takes place in a... um, 
possible future in which basically North America has kind of fallen down back into sort of a, a third world status. And it's about sort of the, the shitty jobs that the North Americans now have creating goods for um, the Asian market. Oh, okay. So it's not literal because that would be something interesting. No, ghosts comes, I think, from some Chinese slang okay. um, for foreigners. Ah, that sounds like a very deep film. It's funny, actually. It, it's deep slash funny. But yeah, I did a bit of um, product design for it. It's like a fake brand of beer and um, a logo for a um, an off-brand uh, version of Viagra. Okay. Spelled with an X. <laughs> okay. Thank you. I just had to have that curiosity satisfied. Okay. Back to Spooky Squid. Uh, you released several games that were free and then I guess decided after those successful um, releases that you wanted to, to have one that was uh, obviously charged. What's, what's the experience of your first game and having that come out to the public? Um, you know, the first time you, you were together and released something. What is that like? Um, for the commercial one or for the free one? Both. For the free one, it was basically like at the same time as I was writing grant applications for our first commercial game, I took part in something that actually Jim Monroe, uh, coming back to him, ran called the Artsy Games Initiative, which was a project to help artists learn how to make games. Hmm. And the game that came out of that for me was a game called... Um, Night of the Cephalopods, which was sort of a um, an experimental game in terms of like ways of delivering narrative. It does this thing that Bastion sort of went on to do something similar with and expand on greatly, where the character narrates back what the player is doing. So it's an action game that sort of looks like Zelda. It's like top down. But if you stand still for too long, he has something he says. If you shoot and miss, he has something he says. If you shoot and hit, he has something he says. Um, it's a very small example of that. It only runs about six minutes long, and there's only about, I think, 55 audio cues that can get mm-hmm. triggered in it. And I made the mistake of making most of them for if you play badly. Um, so the best <laughs> so way it's taunting to, you. Yeah, the best way to actually experience it is to mess around and do, like, dumb things rather than to try to play really well. <laughs> it was lauded, though, for that narrative as, as a really creative yeah, no. tool. It um, it got a lot of attention. It's probably of all of the free games we've done, the one that's gotten the most attention. It got covered on a really popular science blog called Ferengula, and that got a huge number of hits, and all it was was basically the guy who runs it saying that um, he wasn't going to bother playing it even though everyone was recommending it because it only played on a PC. Mm. But that got me more hits than any of the gaming websites that covered it. <laughs> I have heard that um, in, in interviews as well, you know, talking about mobile and the concept of that being something that it's not going to have the games released on it um, from Spooky Squid or the, the Microsoft-only, PC-only kind of scenario. But it sounded like earlier you were saying uh, with the engine that you had used for the Bleed Pixels that it was going to be available on Mac and Linux, and maybe I missed that. Is that the case? It is, but um, it's taking us some time because we're trying to do a really solid port of it. Okay. Um, and that means basically rewriting a huge amount of the code. So how about They Bleed Pixels when you first released that? What was that like? I was so exhausted at that point <laughs> um, that uh, it was just like, it's hard for me to even recall exactly what the first like week was like. <laughs> Did it mean like, sleep? <laughs> 
Well, it wasn't even sleep because the thing that like everyone talks about sort of like how hard it is to get your first game done and then you release it and it's over. But that's there's this whole other part that no one prepares you for, which is that you're suddenly going to have to do tech support. You're going to have to be like really engaging heavily on the social media, your forums, all of that stuff. There's a huge amount of work that comes right after you launch. Mm-hmm. So instead of sort of getting to do what we thought we'd get to do, which was pass out for a month, um, we spent that month scrambling, trying to answer people's questions. Um, <laughs> That's why you hire community managers like me to do that for you, so you can pass out and then someone else can field all of it. Oh, for the day that we can afford that. <laughs> that will be a glorious day. <laughs> so no, we end up doing all of that ourselves. And um, since I also do like all of our trailers and stuff, we put out like three or four trailers the month the game came out, sort of leading up to it. So I had been doing like sleepless nights after sleepless nights. So yeah, the the release was just sort of this like exhausting blur of uh, trying to keep up with everything. Um, Felt amazing to have it like done after two years of developing it, but also just like the level of exhaustion is so hard to get across. Mm. That would be rough because I think you would have mixed reactions probably. And this game is very well received. I'm sure you have mixed reactions where people say, oh, this doesn't work well and I'm angry. And if you're, especially if you're really tired, you don't have the, the mental coordination to be, you know, tactful. Oh, yeah. No, <laughs> Leave me alone. Really, really hard um, in those first few days to be, to be tactful. I think we did a fairly good job of it, but it definitely is because you're like, you're at this like really, emotionally raw state having finally gotten it done um but not had you know enough sleep or exercise or food in months <laughs> um, showers my my absolute favorite um like trolly nasty comment is on our, our um if you go to game facts and check the form for they bleed pixels there's a post that is literally how lazy are the guys at spooky squid which basically is the person going through a website noticing all the stuff that we never finished or that hasn't been updated properly and assuming that the reason that that's the case is that we're lazy as opposed to that we're just crazy busy and (laughs) haven't had time to get to those things. (laughs) So I'm like, okay, yes, we're, we're really lazy. I only released like three free games during that time and like organized these events, traveled to these places, helped this person on their creative project. Yes, I just spend all of my time lazing about in a hammock. (laughs) Consider the fact that they obviously looked up all this information and charted it, so they must be passionate about your company in some way. Yeah, I'm not sure if it's the way that I'd like people to be passionate about (laughs) it. In the stalker passion. Angry stalker way (laughs) is not really the what you look for in your fans. Were your detractors? <laughs> <laughs> they need to play the game and hit things until they bleed. Yeah, I know. They also had like a very sort of delusional thing about how uh, stuff with Microsoft works because we were gonna originally put the game out on Xbox Live indie games, mm. and then that service just got worse and worse while we were developing it. And so as we got close to the end, we we're like, "There's no point in putting this out on that service. We should switch over to PC." Mm-hmm. And yeah, it was basically a business decision to switch over. Um, but the way Xbox Live Indie Games works is that it basically is like the app store. Like Microsoft doesn't know about us. We don't know about them. We just send some stuff. 
through it's very automated. It's not like, um, say, the developers of Fez, where they have to have sort of a relationship with them and a whole bunch of legal stuff uh. going on, but they show up on XBLA. Um, but this person seemed to have those two things confused. So they also have this whole thing of like, oh, Microsoft must have gotten so annoyed at them for shipping the game late that they like cut them off. But no, it was actually just, oh, this service is going to make us not nearly enough money for two years of work. We should probably put this on Steam. Mm-hmm. There's a there's a certain, um, I don't know, a respect, I guess, to having a game on Steam. And, and does that do anything to, for you as like an indie developer? Do people look at you as then somehow <laughs> you have extra Happy Star legitimized because you're on Steam? Oh, definitely. Like it, it does. Like I think there's definitely a perception when you get into any of those sort of um, platforms that are slightly closed. Um, there's a perception, whether it's deserved or not, that the games on those services are better. And sometimes they are. Like definitely, the overall quality of what's on Steam is better than the overall quality of what was on Xbox Live Indie Games mm-hmm. was on the iPod because it's a closed system. But there's still great games that come out and don't come out on Steam. Is it difficult to get approved for Steam, and what alterations did you need to do in order to have that happen? There weren't really any. We were lucky. We sort of had a a little bit of an in on it. Um, We borrowed some money from some more established indies who shall remain nameless, and one of them had a contact at Steam and basically said, you should uh, check these guys out quickly as opposed to taking your time. And so um, usually it takes quite a while to hear back from Steam, um, but we heard back quite quickly that um, they liked the game and that um, they would like to have us on the service. But we we sort of dodged a bullet because right after we launched, like a week after we launched, um, Greenlight started. And now it's sort of a mystery how anything gets on Steam. There's green light, and people sort of understand how it works, but not completely. And some stuff doesn't go through green light, so it's a bit of a mystery now. Uh, yeah, I was. I kind of assumed green light would be great for people that are developing their own game, having all the tools available and some other stuff. But I really haven't understood exactly how that is helpful or, or not helpful. It's it, like you said, it is a bit of a mystery. Yeah, I think. Like the good thing with Steam is that they'll try something and if it's failing, they'll experiment and they're experimenting right now. And I think, you know, in a year or two, they'll have figured out whether green light can work in some form or they'll have scrapped it because it just doesn't do what they wanted it to do. It does mean that like when they start one of those experiments, it's going to be rocky at first until they, they nail down what works and what doesn't. <laughs> yes. It sounds like what you're saying with the the borrowing and some of the stuff earlier about the comics and games collaborations that uh, the gaming indie companies, I guess, maybe specifically in Toronto or just in general, I wonder if the community is is something that is works together, sort of mutual, you know, working together, or if it's something where people are competing with each other because there's only a certain sense of um, a market and you have to kind of be the, the best of the best. There's definitely, I would say, more, more on the collaborative side. There's always, you know, a certain amount of competitiveness, but generally everyone kind of feels like the the market for indie games is growing and can only grow larger, and it's more important so for us to sort of all work together on making 
these sorts of smaller games viable and successful rather than um, than infighting. It makes a lot more sense for us to, to work together and to help each other out, especially when we all have to compete with the amount of like money and power that the AAA studios have. Yeah. Something I wanted to ask you about, if it's okay, um, I do another podcast called the HTL podcast. It's more of like a news podcast. But one of the questions that I was interested in asking for that show, if you don't mind being double podcasted. Um, no, that would be terrible. That'd <laughs> yes. be the worst. <laughs> Let's put you out two times for, you, for the public. Um, is about Kickstarters. And I've talked to American McGee about this a little bit. There's sort of a perception, I feel like, in the general public that Kickstarters are, you know, a bad thing because uh, a lot of times I feel like it can be abused by some of the larger companies will come in and do a Kickstarter when you know they can fully well afford to do something on their own. Or there's a recent um, thing in the news about one of the Hollywood stars doing a Kickstarter for his own personal project um, that, you know, he had the money to afford. Yeah. Is that something that you feel is helpful to the game industry to have Kickstarters where people might, you know, be able to do something they couldn't otherwise? Or do you think it's something that people are just kind of using as a means to not have to pay their bills properly? I think it's hugely helpful. I really like, even with sort of the larger ones, like I think the fact that it allowed Double Fine to do something without a publisher. Mm-hmm. I mean, even as one of sort of the larger um, companies that kind of still leans indie in terms of its sensibilities. Um, I like my main complaint with Kickstarter is the fact that as a Canadian, I still can't do it directly. I have to use an American friend if I want to kickstart something. Really? Yeah. I didn't and, realize that was a uh, region specific here. Yeah, it's it's in the UK, um, it's in the States, it's in a few other places, it's not in Canada. Um, whenever you see something that is marked as coming from a Canadian person or company, they're using a friend um, to do all of the banking for it, which hmm. is a headache and means that they need to not only need the money and be good at making what they want to make, but also happen to have a close enough American friend to uh, to handle the money. Yes. But no, I think it's really like anything that allows stuff to be funded without having to go to um, a publisher or any other sort of authority, I think is is a good thing. And it's not going to be perfect because no system is perfect, but I think it's a lot better than the old way of go to a publisher, beg them for money, beg them for more money when the project goes a little bit longer, lose all of your rights or some of your rights and only make a small amount of the money that the game actually makes. How do you then uh, provide the, I guess, services that a publisher does, which is the, the wide distribution? Even if you fund the game you know, yourself, how do you get that out there for people to find? Um, well, definitely discovery is still a problem for indie games. Um, we were at uh, PAX East recently, and the game's been out for about six months at that point, And there were still a ton of people who'd never heard of it before. And these are people who like care enough about games that they're going to PAX East. Mm-hmm. So that aspect is definitely an issue. The distribution itself, though, Steam takes care of that. And even if there wasn't Steam, we could sell it like on our website. Um, so it's not really distribution that's the issue now. It's um, discoverability. Ah, uh, okay. And yeah, I think um, that's still something that a publisher can provide. And I wish there was a good way to tell whether or not... Um, it's they can provide enough to offset the fact that they'll take a a larger um, amount of the money. 
I guess you can just wait and see if the Kickstarters that are funded actually uh, get bought enough, you know, to to make it worthwhile for people, or if they're going to end up going back to you know the larger distributors and. My feeling is that they'll do well because one of the things that's nice about it is it sort of forces a bunch of companies or a bunch of small companies, individuals to to do something they should be doing anyways with their marketing, which is getting a mailing list together, something that we need to really restart and fix, uh, note to self. <laughs> <laughs> but it sort of it is the first step of getting a community. You have to make a trailer for it. You have to start talking to people. Um, so sort of make sure that everyone who uses it does that bare minimum that they're going to need to do for um, for launching their game anyways. Mm-hmm. Um, One of the things about Kickstarter that the ones I funded that always annoys me is it seems like that the time period from when you support the Kickstarter to the actual launch is a really long time. Um, like recently, well, not recently, back in December, I bought some of the dice rings, which are like spinning rings that you know you could use like dice with their rings and we're still here you know may now and they haven't really shipped yet and you'll just get constant emails on that list that you're talking about you've now established the mailing list just constant emails on the mailing list saying well this is happening that's happening just like i don't care when is it shipping make it happen less than six months from now well the unfortunate thing is that like making stuff is hard and it takes time like it's even difficult for the people creating um the projects to know like we thought we would be done um they bleed pixels a year earlier than we shipped it um it took twice as long to make as we thought it would um and that's being in the thick of it making the game we're sort of like oh we've got most of the systems running we've got a few levels done this is almost done we'll be done by the end of the summer and it's like no we'll be done by the end of next summer <laughs> um it's really really hard to judge that um i think it's really hard with games because there's so many systems and so many things that can go slightly wrong um and it's creative which is always tricky. Um, and then with stuff like those rings is they have to figure out a supplier, they have to figure out their whole manufacturing chain. Hmm. And that's going to involve mistakes. A friend of mine did a um, Kickstarter for a, uh, I think he used Kickstarter for it, a thing called the Pianocade, which is a joystick that um, is actually a musical instrument. Ooh. So it looks like an old school arcade stick with a bunch of buttons, but you can actually play it like a synthesizer. <laughs> And he was telling me that, like, you know, manufacturing that first set, there's all these things that went slightly wrong and made it cost slightly more and take slightly more time. Um, Because manufacturing stuff on, like, a large scale is much different than making that one prototype. So, like, I think that's, like, pretty much an unsolvable problem. Mm. It's just, like, making stuff takes time and what's good about kickstarter is that you can get the money so you can make the thing but that does mean that you're starting at the very earliest stage and having to do all of that after people have spent money and are waiting for the the final object yes that would be a lot of pressure angry mailing list yeah no i'm like there's a good chance we will try to do a kickstarter for our next big game but um I am kind of dreading the uh, the responsibility of knowing, you know, <laughs> X amount of money has gone into our bank account from, you know, so many hundred or thousand people yes. <laughs> and that they're all now waiting and have expectations of what the game is going to be like and all of that. <laughs> um, it's well, kind of terrifying. 
Let's talk about the games, <laughs> as we should. Um, they believe Pixels released in August of 2012 for PC. Uh, the, the premise of this story, which I've been playing, you know, to a certain level, it's, it's a difficult game. Um, I'm hoping I'm pronouncing this right. Lefkadio Academy? I think that's how it's pronounced. I've never actually heard it spoken. Okay. <laughs> of Cadio Academy for Troubled Young Ladies, um, where you're, you start out as a young girl who finds this cursed book and somehow her hands changed into weapons that they remind me of like tuning forks, really large, sharp tuning forks. Can you tell us more about the lore? Because it's a lot of it's just kind of you get uh, cinematics at the end of each level and you can kind of put the story together, but it, there's not a lot, you know, in research where it will give you the entire story together. Or is that like part of the secret? That's um, intentional. I kind of wanted, like, I feel horror settings work best when um, there's a little bit left to the imagination. Um, ah. So it's, I feel like I wanted to tell a very simple story, but not be too explicit about any one aspect of it. So that there is some sort of thinking that has to go through and, and some filling in of the gaps um, for the player. Makes sense. This seems to me that you you would really do well to have a gamepad. Uh, you can play it without, but there's a, a bit of customization for um, some of the keys and such. Is that something you recommend with all your games? Yeah, generally, like some of them need it less. This one, I definitely would say um, the gamepad makes a really big difference. It is very much a gamepad-centric um, control scheme. It's been described as intense platforming, which my listeners might recall is also the category that we had for Team Meat when they were on with Super Meat Boy. Um, can you describe this choice and, and kind of the level of precision in the creation of the game? Describe this choice. Yeah, like what, what way? What would that, for people that don't know what intense platforming okay. is, i.e. you're going to um, die and you need to really, really, really save as much as you can. Yeah, it, it'd be, um, there are platforming games that, there's jumping in there, but it's sort of there for flavor. It doesn't really... Um, you don't need to get good at it, necessarily. Um, it's fairly simple um, jumping. Um, intense platforming tends to be things like Super Meat Boy or N and N+, Plus, um, or some of the levels in Knit Stories, where um, you need to be very precise with what you're doing. You need to really sort of think through what you're going to do, because there's a fairly um, small margin for error. Um, so there's going to be a lot of spikes, there's going to be a lot of saws. Um, <laughs> ah, yes. A lot of tongues. Yeah, all, all sorts of little things to, uh, to trip you up. Um, okay. So it's, it's generally a, a matter of it being the same basic idea, but much more difficult, sort of making you really have to understand how the movement works. Um, and and then perform well with it. Does this game learn? Uh, it seems though as though you know maybe AI has some something happening there where you can do certain moves, and then if you keep doing them over and over, it seems to counteract them in ways. Yeah, it's not that it loans, but it's a lot more reactive than most platforming um, AI is. So the enemies don't just sort of have a routine. They have behavior. So um, if you sort of stand too close to the edge of a platform and there's an enemy on another platform, it will actually sort of stop and camp that spot until you move farther away. Um, they'll also, if they're hit a few times, they'll block, and they can duck and block as well. Um, we really wanted the game not to be about button mashing, which I feel a lot of um, beat-em-up combat relies too much on. 
Um, so we sort of stripped down the number of moves, but made all of the moves more important and more strategic. And one way we did that was by having the enemies um, really block a lot when attacked head-on, so that just attacking head-on wouldn't be a winning strategy. What do the uh, the different phrases mean based on, I guess, how successful your attacks are or, or how epic they say different things? Yeah, we sort of uh, wanted to fool around with the usual sort of like cool, awesome, whatever that fighting games have when mm-hmm. you do um, high combos and replace them all with sort of stereotypical Lovecraftian phrases like Eldric, Preternatural, etc. So they're there just sort of as a, a little um, gag um, <laughs> for fans. Nice. How many achievements are there? I've come across several, just kind of not sure why. <laughs> at times I'll be like, oh, achievement. I'm not sure what happened. You can actually look at the achievements in-game, which not uh-huh. every Steam game does, I know. If you go into the extras, um, there's some bonus levels. There's a whole bunch of awesome unlockable art, including you mentioned American McGee earlier. Three of the artists on Alice, The Madness Returns um, did guest art. Oh, um, some really pretty stuff in there. But yeah, we have all of them listed, so you can actually find out what each of them means. Um, and there are, I think, I haven't counted since we added the last bonus level. I think we're at over 120 achievements. Wow. So some of them are for simple things like, oh, you dashed over some spikes. Sort of things to sort of point people in the direction of specific um, moves that they can do that might not be obvious to them. Mm -hmm. Um, And then a whole bunch of them are for doing very specific um, goals at the end of the levels, like finding all six pages that are hidden on each level, Um, finding, uh, doing a speed run, so like getting through the entire level under a certain time, Um, getting certain score rankings, so it's like an A rank and an S rank, both will get you um, an achievement. Um, and there's one for not dying in the entire level. And then there's another achievement for having done that for every single level. Oh. And there are people who can do that, which kind of blows my mind. I've seen a few people um, post on our Facebook page um, screenshots of every single achievement filled in. And that is a feat. If you played a lot, I would think you would get familiar with where the location of all the saws and, and spikes are and things. It's neat. You just go over and over and play it again. Yeah, but a lot of, like, it's not really a game that's as much about memory as it is about, like, that always helps, but it's really about sort of just knowing how the movement works and and just be becoming very, very skilled at the, the Twitch aspects. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because sometimes you will knock them onto different platforms and put yourself in a bad position, and if you kick wrong, yes, definitely. Yeah. Adaptability is good. I like how the game begins very simply and kind of gives you a mini tutorial on how to do different moves and some of the early levels are simpler and then it gets more and more complicated with the puzzle as far as you know making sure you're not running into things that will kill you you know progressively which is nice because it's not it doesn't allow for frustration immediately you kind of build up your skill level and then um but it's challenging enough that you don't get bored yeah no that's definitely like um, you've come into it with the right skill level. I've seen people who aren't quite as good at platformers and they get frustrated very early on. They find the first level to be hard. It's difficulty is an incredibly hard thing to get right because there isn't one good difficulty for everyone. But we did try to put a ramp in there where it does definitely like progress 
Um, there's a few spikes in there that I'd probably even out if I were to go back um, and and edit the levels since. But at some point, you've sort of got to go like, it's done, the paint is dry. <laughs> yes. Your new game that you're working on, Russian Subway Dogs, um, I'd love to learn more about that. Um, the fact, I guess, you're a dog, and <laughs> that's my favorite part. In Soviet Russia, there's no 10-second rule where you yeah. grab your food. <laughs> Tell us about this game. That so that was a jam game I did at a jam called Spam Jam um, over a year ago now, and I'm just sort of slowly going back to it in bits and pieces whenever I have free time. Um, so the original game was made in two days, um, which... Again, game maker, kind of amazing once you get good at it for, for doing stuff fast. And it's inspired by these, um, stray dogs in the Moscow, um, subway system that will ride in from the suburbs every day to, um, areas which are busy and sort of bark behind people to surprise them and steal their food. So when I heard about this, that this was like a real thing, it immediately sounded to me like it would be a uh, a fantastic game um, to build something out of just because it's so ridiculous, but there's like definite game mechanics in there. Um, so the game itself is takes place on a subway platform and you play as one of these um, Russian stray dogs and people come out of the subway and some of them are eating food and some of them are drinking vodka because <laughs> it's Russia. Right. All the K's are backwards. Um, and so you sort of run up behind them, you bark behind them, and you sort of avoid the exploding vodka because it explodes because it's just that <laughs> that high alcohol content that it just explodes on contact. Um, and try to eat the food before it hits the ground. And the version that you can play right now doesn't have this, but the version I've been working on at home has a thing where if you explode food, the food is then um, hot food, which is worth more. Oh. So it has a whole bunch of little interlocking systems still, even though it's a fairly simple base mechanic. And so you just try to get a high enough score and you're constantly dealing with your hunger level, which is going, uh, your sort of stamina is constantly falling. So you've got to make sure that you're eating enough and there's rival dogs that will try to steal your food and lower your points. Ooh, um, with red, scary eyes. And I've got some ideas for what I want to do for the sort of commercial version of it. I want to add um, Russian subway bears. <laughs> subway bears? Yeah. So the doors would open and out comes a bear. Um, <laughs> it's like the bomb of, of Fruit Ninja. Like you, you need to get away from the bear when it comes out of the door. Yeah, it'll be sort of like you've got to avoid it, but then you've got to sort of take care of it. Um, I want to sort of add some stuff. I always, often think about the sort of rhythm of a game and you want to sort of change the tempo it spots. So it would be a way of changing the tempo from the regular gameplay to something where you're really concentrating on dealing with it and then sort of going back to um, the core um, part of the game. And so I've got some other ideas, snow drifts coming out of uh, the doors, um, some other types of food that are more valuable or less valuable, um, other types of people coming out and walking around. Do you have a, a guess on when this might release? It's um, it's a back background project. So like we're mainly working on porting um, They Bleed Pixels and making some more bonus content for it. So um, I'm kind of hoping by the end of the year, but um, for various reasons, I have a feeling it's going to be sometime <laughs> next year. Okay. Well, will you go for Steam again? Definitely. Like 
I think with any of our games, unless it's completely inappropriate, um, we'll definitely try. Um, whether um, we can just put anything on there now, I don't know. I like it's as much a black box to the developers as it is to everyone outside. Um, how a lot of the things at Steam work, we'll definitely try to get it on Steam. And I'm also looking at um, iOS and Android for it because it has fairly simple controls. And um, I'd love to get it on like 3DS or Vita um, if we can manage that. Isn't your partner Ukrainian? Does he? Yes. Does he He's have Ukrainian, any? Uh, Canadian. Uh, is he? Is he going to? I mean, a, a Ukrainian is not Russian, but close enough that he could probably be useful in some input. What does he think about this? Um, he mainly like he looks at it, and he's very much a old school PC gamer. So. Um, Sort of small um, score-based games just don't appeal to him much. He's just like, I don't get it. <laughs> okay. But this is one that um, if we put it on iOS and Android, it'll probably be handled by um, some friends of ours who are very good, skilled programmers in that sort of area, which isn't really our expertise. We're PC people. Okay. I would love to talk about the Hand-Eye Society now, which I was glad you linked me, and it's Interesting discovery, uh, something I've been enjoying reading about. Uh, the three goals, which I'm going to tell our listeners, to help people make games, to connect game makers with each other and an audience offline, and to foster diversity in game creation and the public perception of games. How did you get involved in this, and, and what prompted you to, to found such a thing or be on the board? Um, so around this is again around the time that um, Spooky Squid formed, um, so around five years ago now. We're just coming up to the fifth anniversary, actually, at the end of the year. Several of us sort of in the uh, the local game scene got together. I think it was, again, Jim Monroe. You'll notice his name comes up again and again if you're talking about anything going on in Toronto with games. Um, he invited a bunch of um, folks who sort of were doing game stuff in Toronto um, or who were organizing events together and said, like, you know, I feel like there's so much going on in this scene, but there's not a lot sort of bringing everyone together and maybe we can do something that, uh, that would start to do that, that would sort of let the rest of Toronto know that there's a ton of amazing game stuff happening in the city and um, also offer more opportunities for the people making games to meet. Um, and so, yeah, basically from that, um, we all kind of talked and um, voted on a name and somehow the Hand-Eye Society ended up being that name. <laughs> um, Makes you think like Hand-Eye Coordination, is there? Yeah. Okay. Um, that was kind of the idea. Uh, but also we wanted something that was a bit mysterious and weird, so it could be all sorts <laughs> of different types of things. Yes. Um, so I'm trying to remember who was at that original meeting. I think it was... Um, Reagan and Mayer, who made N Plus um, on XBLA, one of the like first XBLA hits. Um, I think Jonathan Mack from Sound Shapes. Um, Jim McGinley, who's um, one of the organizers of Toe Jam, the Toronto Indie Game Jam, some more mm. on the organizer side of things, although he just joined uh, Drinkbox this week. Um, and as you can see, as I name these people, there's a lot going on in the city in terms of like developers that people, if they've been following the indie scene, would know. Um, and I'm probably missing someone, I'm sure. Um, but uh, it's okay. We, we sort of started out um, 
by just doing the social. So we'd have sort of like some sort of theme, someone would give a talk, and then we'd hang out in a bar and drink. Um, and we'd do them roughly every two months, although we were never perfect about that. Um, and then last year, sort of things stepped up. We um, teamed up with the film festival um, in Toronto. And we basically, they asked us if we want, like, if there was any things that we'd like to do that we hadn't been able to do. And we came to them with a bunch of projects, one of which was comics versus games. Mm. And so that's sort of how that started was it was a hand eye and the Toronto International Film Festival. And so the other people that they had partnered under this umbrella called Tiff Nexus. Um, so some of the other stuff that was done by the hand eye with that was something called the Peripherals Initiative. Um, which was getting um, hardware hackers and game makers together to make games that had unusual interfaces. Ah. Um, and that I wish a better job had been done um, promoting that because there's a bunch of things that I think if people knew existed, they'd be kind of blown away by. It's been an interesting year with some hardware, you know, people coming out with different boxes. Uh, we- yeah, and some of that stuff. So things things of that nature, is that what you're talking about? It used to be much weirder. So like one of the things that was made was um, a flight sim with art by Super Brothers, who did Sword and Sorcery, mm-hmm. um, but it was controlled by eye tracking. So you oh. put on this helmet and it would track your eyes to move you around. Wow. So that's one. Droken, who had a game that um, has been getting a lot of buzz lately called Starseed Pilgrim. He made this amazing game that is played on like this old school crazy, like, think of like an old, like, picture of a submarine console. Mm-hmm. So, like, it has like a patch cord and dials, and they're all sort of mysteriously marked. <laughs> and you have to figure out how to play the game. So, you're like patching into different things as like a little screen. Um, on the console, and then it has a big screen that's projected with a projector. <gasps> and you're learning how to play the game. When they showed it to an audience, there was a pile of post-it notes next to it. And people would figure out well, how part of the game worked, write a note, and post it onto the console. So over time, people figured out how to play it. Oh. It's like really cool stuff, and I wish that there was, like, was more video archive of um, people playing it and such that they could see. There's like a little bit if people go onto the TIFF Nexus website. Um, but not nearly enough to really show how cool some of the projects were. I enjoyed reading about the Difference Engine initiative. Yes. So that one was um, an initiative to um, help more women who are interested in making games learn how to do it. Um, And that sort of, from that, spawned off a group from one of the participants, or two, a few of the participants put together something called Dames Making Games, which is now sort of an institution in the city, um, which is specifically um, for helping women learn how to uh, to make games and for sort of providing a, a community for them. The word incubator is used a lot in that description. I'm not quite sure what that means. Can you define that in, in the Difference Engine initiative concept? Um, the idea that sort of like you, um, you take a bunch of people who can't do that, don't have that skill yet, you sort of you incubate them so that it, it, it hmm, <laughs> trying to think of a good way. Of <laughs> like they go from a small egg to a full-grown chicken. Yeah, that it, it basically, it's, it's to provide an environment that would allow um, I see. sort of a scene to... Good conditions. To, to, um, to emerge, and that's what's happened. Um, there is now like a lot more women in Toronto making interesting game projects. 
um, than there was before we did that initiative. Well, that's that's really neat. I always support that. It's nice to have. This doesn't seem that there's very many uh, women developers, ne not necessarily game players either. So I always try to have them on the show when I can. And nice to know that there's a place that's supporting that. Yeah, definitely. Like the whole gaming community can only benefit from more diversity, and we have definitely a problem that there is not enough at the moment. I feel. Well, that's it one of the reasons I like they bleed pixels because you don't have your, a typical protagonist as well. You know, it's kind of a little cute girl. <laughs> yeah, I feel like there's so many like it's in some ways it's much easier for me to come up with a cool, interesting um, female protagonist because there's so fewer to compete with. Whereas, like, if I'm doing a dude, there's so many things that have already been done with dude protagonists. Like, I think she'd be much less interesting if she'd been a hulking guy with claws. Well, she'd be Wolverine. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yes. Okay. Um, well, I think we're getting uh, close to closing. Is there anything you'd like to say about any of the stuff that you didn't get a chance to expound on? No, I think that pretty much that, that covers everything pretty well. Okay. I'd just suggest that people, um, if they like what they heard, they check out They Bleed Pixels and they check out a bunch of the free games we have on SpookySquid.com. Where can people find you if they'd like to learn more? I know you have a Twitter handle and I assume Spooky Squid, Squid does as well. They're one and the same in this case, so I'll, I'll tweet both. <laughs> ah, yes, that's right. And, um, <laughs> and random actual news for the company from the same Twitter handle. So it's at Spooky Squid. Excellent. And what do you think people can do to be supportive of any companies, and especially you, as these things get ready to release? I'd say... Um, one, definitely actually buy the games. Don't pirate them. Um, <laughs> Did you see that game that you're supposed to develop a game within the game that if you pirate, it makes it so you fail? Have you seen that recently? <laughs> I don't think I've, I've seen that, but there's definitely have been some, some creative, weird uh, things done around the fact that everyone knows that their games will be pirated. <laughs> it's just wrong. It's uh, five bucks, people. Or nine, it's $9 for the collector's edition, if you want to call it that, which... You know, of they bleed pixels. Like you get, you get that, and the soundtrack for nine ninety nine or something. I think nine ninety nine is the main one, and then it's like twelve ninety nine with the soundtrack. Ah, which still, oh my god, so expensive, <laughs> really expensive. Yeah, I think another thing is, um, if you really want to support the games, buying them at full price is um, is really nice because it is sort of ridiculous the the price that people expect for games now, um, and. Like, I'm guilty of this, we're all guilty of this, but given the amount of work that goes into a game, expecting all games to be a dollar or two ninety nine or whatever is, is kind of ridiculous. Um, and is less sustainable for the smaller indies. It's fine for the, sort of the people where they get, you know, millions and millions of people buying the game, then it doesn't matter what the price is, they'll get enough to make their next game. But for smaller niche titles, um, it really is important that uh, at least some people are buying it at the full price. And when you do that, you're definitely supporting the creators more. Very good. And then spread the word, of course. Yes. Uh, tell other people if you like a specific indie game, um, tell people about it, post about it on forums. Um, all that sort of stuff really helps because the only way that people find out about indie games is through word of mouth, really. Mm -hmm. This is true. This is what we're doing right here. Okay. Well, thank you for being on the show. 
And as always, if you'd like to support this show, uh, you can do so by going to Genesee.com and leaving a donation of your own choice. To the right-hand side, you can find buttons that allow you to do this, or you can pick from the designated ones there. Always helpful. The show does survive on the donations of listener support. So thank you for all of that. Also, you could go to iTunes and leave a review if you would care to, which is also very helpful to support the show. And if you'd like to find me on Twitter at Gray Area Podcast, you can find me on Facebook slash Gray Area Podcast, or obviously on iTunes. In another week or two, I have another show coming out for you, which I hope you will enjoy, and I'm excited about recording too. So thank you for listening, and I'll see you next week with a new episode. This podcast is a part of the Signals Media All-Star Network. For more information on this and other fine shows, go to SignalsMedia.com. It's okay to stick our stuff in your ears. Really?